Have you thought about securing your hard-earned assets? Do you have concerns about the future? Protecting assets is crucial, and that's where Nelson Elder Care Law excels. As a family-owned and family-focused firm, we provide absolute assurance and peace of mind through our trademarked Absolute Protection Trust, tailored services in estate planning, probate administration, Medicaid crisis solutions, guardianship, and conservatorship. Our goal is to exceed your expectations and empower informed decisions. Visit NelsonElderCareLaw.com for asset protection and peace of mind. This is the Ben Burnett Show, the only show in America that features a one-term has-been retired politician that nobody knows on Extra 106.3. This is Ben Burnett, your host for the next hour of the Ben Burnett Show right here on Extra 106.3, Atlanta's only conservative talk station. Well, the presidential election for 2024 is finally underway. We've seen America drift further and further apart. Keep waiting for the unity. That doesn't seem like it's going to be out there. I keep waiting for people to come together. I keep waiting for Donald Trump to go away. He only gets stronger. So listen, if there's anything you're going to learn over the course of the next hour, I am wrong a lot. I say that half kidding. I'm actually usually right. I'm a very adept room reader. I know that the Republican Party is wildly and fiercely loyal to Donald Trump. If you doubted that, you were proven wrong this week. With over 100,000 people who turned out for the Iowa caucus on behalf of the Republican Party, you learned one thing. Over one out of every two of you are voting for Donald Trump. That is a middle America state, but that's going to tell you exactly where we are. You're going to go to New Hampshire. You're going to see Nikki Haley put up a better fight as some of the suburbs of Boston creep into New Hampshire. Some of those moderate suburban women come out to vote. They still want to identify as Republican. I think you're going to see her show well, and I think you're going to see Ron DeSantis in the next month go away. Truthfully, I can all but guarantee you Governor DeSantis is going to go away. I think that's a shame. I hope there's a place for him in President Trump's administration, and there probably is. Donald Trump knows he's a very bright guy with a very bright future. My hope for Donald Trump is that he sees himself as somebody who is able to bring people with him on behalf of the party. My fear is that he still doesn't care. I have several criticisms of the man. If you look at his first term in office, the people he surrounded himself with in the cabinet, Bill Barr, Tom Price, General Mattis, people that I think we all look at and respect on the right. And they're like, nah, man, it's going to be too tough. I had Tom Price on the show six, nine months ago and asked him about his time in the Trump administration. And he talked about how Donald Trump, regardless of his dealings with the Obamacare repeal, he wanted to blame somebody else. You can't just just sit there and be the martyr. It doesn't work. The American people see through it. And I think that by the end of 2028, if you ask me what my big fear is, is that the Republicans have lost even more credibility than they've already had. But we are where we are. There's a lot of things going on in the country right now. You look at the continuing resolution with respect to Congress funding. You see immigration play a key part of that. I'll say it again. Donald Trump is right about immigration. He is right about NATO. He was right about tax reform. He was right about a lot of things. Navigating Congress is something that that man struggled with. And if you look at the deal that President Biden wants, he's largely avoided immigration. In his time in the United States Senate, he didn't want a lot to do with it. The Obama administration was not as open borders driven centric, but this is no longer an issue that Biden can run from. You look, you saw in December with Eagle Pass, some of the shutting down of railways that hurt average Americans from transfer, trade, commerce, the things that ultimately matter to people like you. And all at the same time, he turned a blind eye towards the 10,000 people a day coming into this country illegally. The United States has a massive problem with respect to immigration. 
I think that Mike Johnson has a very, very tough road to hoe. He's got a two-vote majority in the United States Congress, and the Senate is controlled by Democrats, so they're going to put forward an immigration deal and a continuing resolution that's probably tied into that immigration deal with funding for the war in Ukraine. I don't think it gives Mike Johnson a ton of hope to sit there and do what the Freedom Caucus ultimately wants the man to do. That you know, But at the same time, you have to continue to govern. If you want to beat people... You cannot live in the margins. The Democrats are very, very good at staying together, and the Republicans are very, very talented at circling the wagons and shooting at one another. But I don't necessarily think the budget deal in the continuing resolution is the wrong thing to do in the short term. I do think it's the wrong thing to do in the long term. I think the Republicans are going to have to have power in the United States Congress, and they're going to have to have power in the United States Senate, and they're going to have to have a Republican president, and they are going to have to be who they have never shown you that they are capable of being. Republicans love to talk about the spending in Washington when they are not in power. That is their calling card. You can take it to the bank. If they don't control a chamber of Congress and they don't control the presidency, that's exactly where they're always going to look. And I think that's a mistake that we make that we have to be honest about and we have to continue to look through. We have to progress to that. You have to have guys in the Freedom Caucus that have a very, very warm seat at the table because they're the ones who are going to stop the spending in this country. You're going to ultimately have to raise the Social Security age. You get to ultimately do in life whatever the hell you want until it's time for you to do what you have to do. That's a really important lesson, and the United States is getting ever closer. I think that the only reason that that hasn't come front and center immediately is because the United States of America is still the most creditworthy, sovereign government really in the entire world. You look at China, they have huge unemployment issues right now. They are pulling back a little bit from their Belt and Road Initiative. But when you don't have the balance sheet to sit there and ultimately keep up with the things that you've promised, people start to take notice. And the United States politics is front and center all over the world today. You look, Davos is going on in Switzerland. We all roll our eyes at Davos. I I hate the clean energy, climate-driven conversation. I think it's been subsidized far in excess of whatever needed to take place. And look, if you drive an EV, I don't hate you. I think clean energy is the most straightforward pathway to energy independence that the United States of America has. Because if we can create it all here, we can tell OPEC and the rest of the world that they can get the hell right out of town. But there have been a lot of people who sat down at Davos this week. One of the most interesting ones, we talk about Jamie Dimon a lot on the program. He's the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. He is a left-leaning, marginal Democrat, but I think he's one of the smartest guys in the room, and he uses the bully pulpit when he has the opportunity, and I love how he talks to people. And he said a lot of things this week about Donald Trump that I think the Democrats ultimately need to take notice of because, as you've just seen, it's 51% of the party. If you just assume for two seconds that 40% of the people in this country are Republicans and 40% of this country are Democrats and the 20% identify in the middle, he makes a ton of sense. Take a listen. When people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting and they're basically scapegoating them, that you are like him. Uh, and, but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. And if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO. Kind of right about immigration. He grew the economy quite well. China, China ta- virus. Tax reform worked. Mm-hmm. He was right about some of China. I don't. Th- I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when he, yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues, and that's why they're voting for him. 
And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you, have, you should always ask the why. Not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting Trump? It's hard to Trump? hate 75 million of your fellow Americans. And it's, I, I agree. It's done and, and you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, not, hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Like, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? And I do think the economy will affect. And I think this, this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. It sounds like Jamie Dimon has been a really longtime listener of the Ben Burnett Show. I love being right. I think that the, those 20% in the middle that I talked about just a few minutes ago, man, I, I've sat here for a year, over a year now. I hate NATO. Donald Trump hates NATO. The, one of the most profound things that the man did in office was tell Europe that they had to contribute 2% of GDP to national defense spending. And he also looked around and said, is there intrinsic value to every single country in NATO? And do they have our best interest? And do we have their best interest at heart? There are countries in NATO that are Islamic theocracies. You can sit here and try to tell me that you think Turkey is a duly elected government. I don't trust them at all. And if somebody attacked them, I would never in my wildest dreams want to send my two kids to go defend that country. I mean, Jamie Dimon in other parts of that interview that I didn't play said, I think that the... I think the world is wrong for stopping quantitative easing, meaning printing money to subsidize everything and keep it afloat. I actually disagree with Jamie Dimon. I think it's time to return every single dollar to the taxpayers that is humanly possible. So I don't agree with the guy on everything. But you look, it's hard to hate 75 million Americans. It's too big to ignore. And I think all of the issues that the Democrats could possibly be persuadable on are all for nothing. They have sat here and run so far to the left that they forgot what ultimately mattered to average people. That's the one thing you can't do in politics. It never gets further away from kitchen table issues. They're the economy, their jobs, their job creation. And although President Trump will scare you with immigration, just like the Republican Party will, I do disagree with the Republican Party on not wanting to allow a certain number of immigrants into the country. You looked last week as part of the continuing resolution in the immigration deal with Mexico. They want to allow a million immigrants into this country a year. Now, there are parts of the plan that I agree with, and there are parts that I disagree with. There are only a handful of ways that you can sit here and actively go to war with the United States' declining birth rate, accelerating death rate, and low unemployment rate. We need a fundamental pathway to citizenship. We actually do. It's the only way that the United States government is going to continue to operate a fiscally sound balance sheet over the long term. And I know that there's a lot of people who sit here and say, well, I don't know if I want to let these people into this country. Look, you pay more every single time you go out to eat and you see a help wanted sign because that small business owner has to ultimately pay people even more money so they'll work more hours so that they don't leave and exacerbate an already existing problem. And I'm not doing that job, and neither are most of you. I give Jamie Dimon a ton of credit because every time he sits in front of the United States Senate Banking Committee, he reads the Democrats the Riot Act. But the guy is right about 75% of the issues. If he were to sit on a stage, what he would do to President Biden would be considered cruel and unusual punishment. I think Jamie Dimon is one of the smartest, most persuadable Democrats in the entire country. I wish he was on that stage literally just to bring Democrats back to the right, because at least the guy talks in common sense. 
You can download my show on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tuesdays, I do interviews. Thursdays, I do my thought in one take. This last week, we broke down the Iowa caucuses. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ben Burnett. You can follow me on Instagram. Go download the show. Go subscribe. This is Extra 106.3 Atlanta's only conservative talk station. We will be right back. Have you thought about securing your hard-earned assets? Do you have concerns about the future? Protecting assets is crucial, and that's where Nelson Elder Care Law excels. As a family-owned and family-focused firm, we provide absolute assurance and peace of mind through our trademarked Absolute Protection Trust, tailored services in estate planning, probate administration, Medicaid crisis solutions, guardianship, and conservatorship. Our goal is to exceed your expectations and empower informed decisions. Visit NelsonElderCareLaw.com for asset protection and peace of mind. Right now, American heroes are in some of the most dangerous places on earth, risking their lives to protect our freedom. But there are a forgotten group of heroes here at home. They face fear, loneliness, and despair, the ever-present threat of losing a loved one. These are the brave sons and daughters of the U.S. military, and they are heroes too. American Bible Society brings the hope and comfort of God's Word to the kids that need it most. Honor a hero and donate today at AmericanBible.org hero. Welcome into the Ben Burnett Show. My guest today is Georgia's most powerful lobbyist, Don Bolia. Don, welcome to the show. Ben, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. You have seen a lot of things happen and transpire in the last 6 to 12 months since the Georgia General Assembly got out of session. You've seen the Georgia legislature get sued over maps that are allegedly discriminatory against people of color or districts that represent people of color, and you have seen them go back into a special session, redraw some maps, second verse, same as the first, or you think that these ones are actually going to hold up and Brian, Governor Brian Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones have threaded the needle the right way. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I think they handled the entire process quite brilliantly. Uh, so they're still litigating the original lawsuit. Uh, but in the meantime, as a as a measure, they held a special session and they drew new maps. the The judge was very prescriptive. Remember, this was an Obama appointed judge. was very prescriptive in what kind of maps they had to draw. So he had specific numbers they had to get to, and they did a very good job of essentially protecting Republicans, which has been proven through the Supreme Court that that's legal. You can gerrymander for partisan purposes but then they drew additional minority-majority districts. So it was quite brilliant the way they did it, and uh, the uh, Obama-appointed judge actually approved the new maps. Now, would they be happier with the new maps just to stick their finger in the eye, or are they going to hope that they, the original maps hold, hold the test of time after the appeals process is done? Well, for the purposes of this 2024 election— no one can really redraw maps. Uh, if you think about it, uh, qualifying begins in March. Uh, the primaries are in May, and of course the elections are in November. So it's really impossible for you to run on anything but the current maps. And so I think they're going to see how it goes. Uh, there are some people who believe the maps are actually more beneficial than the maps they drew in 2021 for the 2022 elections. So it's very possible that they may actually improve their position as far as numbers, the, the, the general wisdom is the Senate will stay the same. There are some people who believe there are one or two additional House seats that could flip to the Republicans. 
uh, it could very well be that they lose a few seats. So I think they're going to see how it goes in the 24 cycle. I don't think there's anyone who thinks the 24 cycle will flip the General Assembly from Republican control to Democrat control. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that this is just what we do as Americans every 10 year every 10 years in competitive states is just sue people over maps, hope you pick up a couple of seats or is is it theater is there actually anything to it? I mean, what it frustrates me as a guy who thinks that Governor Kemp and the legislature really do a good job of seeking middle ground a lot with the Democrats. Don't get me wrong. I think they ostracize them when they absolutely have to over some of the really hyper-partisan issues. But I think most of the time, you see Democrats get bills through the legislature in Georgia all the time, probably every single day. Well, it's interesting. The, the most egregious maps, in fact, here's something interesting. Since the 1965 Civil Rights Act was passed, uh, many states, via litigation and other reasons, were under uh, federal control of the maps. In other words, they would pass their maps if they had to pass a federal uh, test, and the federal government, the Justice Department, had to review the maps and approve them. So if you think about it, since 1965, there have been five official redistrictings. So you'd have uh, 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, and 2020. In all of those cases... If you think about this, it's amazing. Democrats controlled a majority of those maps. They controlled 70, 80, 90, 2000. The Republicans drew it in 2010 and obviously in 2020. In, in all of those cases, the only maps that have been absolutely overturned are the ones drawn by Democrats. In fact, the most egregious one was a map drawn in, drawn in 2001 when Roy Barnes was governor. And those were absolutely thrown out. In fact, it ended up being a three-judge panel that drew the maps that ultimately gave the Republicans the majority they had. After the 2002 cycle, they won the Senate. In 2004 cycle, they won the House. So it's interesting that the Justice Department, which generally tends to, our, our career attorneys that tend to lean liberal, uh, approved almost every Republican map, and ultimately this one, there they was a judge that approved it, but the Justice Department didn't approve four previous Democrat-drawn maps. As you look into the 2024 legislative cycle in the state of Georgia, what are some of the key issues that you think affect average people the most? The budget. The budget is the most important thing that we're going to be looking at um, the, 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 the state of Georgia is in a really good spot from a budget standpoint. There's $6 billion in the rainy day fund, and there's an excess of $6 billion they get to spend on other stuff. And the biggest thing and the most expensive line item is going to be a tax cut. So your income taxes will go down. Uh, I think that's baked in. I don't think there's any way that's not going to happen. So I think you're going to see in this budget process another tax cut to the tune of a billion dollars. That's on top the billion dollars you saw in the last cycle, last um, general assembly cycle, and a billion dollars you saw before that. So this is $3 billion in permanent cuts over the last three years. So that, that, those, those are real numbers. When you look, I know Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones ran for office on eliminating the state income tax. I understand that there are politics that go into everything, and that is great politics. Is it theoretically possible in the state of Georgia, given the growth we've seen, for the state income tax to ultimately go away, or is that still just good politicians making good promises? I mean, it's theoretically possible, but it's very, very difficult. And, and the problem is that we have border states, 
Tennessee and Florida that have zero income taxes. In North Carolina, it's closer to 3%, I believe. So we're, we're competing against these folks for, for employees, for companies to move here, and it all does factor in. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, I compare our tax code to making chili or making spaghetti sauce. You know, when you start off that process, you kind of start the same. You've got the beef, you've got the tomatoes, you've got some of the same ingredients. But once you make the decision to make chili or to make spaghetti, it's really hard to go back into one or the other. And that's what our tax code is. And the problem is, is that our income taxes generate such a large proportion. Our sales tax would have to go up. The other thing is that by having a blended tax structure, we really have better revenue uh, uh, um, expectations. So in, in a down economy, you might see sales tax revenue go down, but generally income taxes will stay stable for some time until unemployment gets very, very high. And so you have a much more stable, blended, and it would be no different than when, when you're investing in your 401k. You don't tell your, invest, your, uh, your, your broker or your investment advisor, I want to do 100% Bitcoin. You say, let's blend this thing out. Let's do some safe stuff, and let's do some stuff that's a little risky. And so that's what the tax code is. What other avenues? I've heard, I've heard it talk. I was on the radio and some other stations earlier this week talking. <laughs> Gambling comes up in the state of Georgia all the time. I won't say it falls further and further behind because I'm not much of a gambler. I know you love to gamble. I know, I know you'd sit there and probably push the bill for free. What is the thought process going into that this go around? And are they going to have to be able to find enough support to bring a constitutional amendment together? You know, I think the conventional wisdom is it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, you know, there's so many states that allow sports betting. We're one of the few states. And quite frankly, creating a geofence around Georgia that doesn't allow you to sports bet just really creates uh, an incentive for folks to open accounts in other states or travel or whatnot. And the numbers aren't compelling from a revenue standpoint. So if you did full casino gambling, gambling I've heard anywhere from 300 to $400 million in additional revenue, which sounds like a lot, except when you consider the state budget is hovering around $33, $34 billion just from state revenue, not counting fe- federal revenue. So it doesn't necessarily move the needle, but it could move the needle on specific things. Sports gambling, I've heard anywhere from 60 to $100 million in new revenue in the state. Uh, at the end of the day, I think we do have to consider that people are doing it anyway. We do allow a form of gambling in the lottery, so it's not like we're a non-gambling state. And I do think that all the polls shows that if it were ever to go on the ballot, it would pass overwhelmingly. So I do think there's some momentum for sports gambling. You do see the Braves, the Hawks, the Falcons, all the major sports folks understand that it's the key to keeping eyes glued to those screen. It's what keeps interest in games when there's no other reason to be interested. I saw an email today that said, if I know any state legislators that are actively pushing casino gaming or sports gaming, Please send them to 680 The Fan because they want to talk about it and put the issue out there because of the tens of thousands of people that are listening to that station every single second, plenty of them would love to go bet against the Falcons. Absolutely. What, other, what are some of the hyper-partisan issues that you think are going to be coming down the pike this year? Obviously, school choice has seen a pass a time or two. I actually think that this is probably the year where they passed some version of a school choice bill. Governor Brian Kemp has been very supportive of it. You don't see him come out of the ivory tower a lot at the last minute to try to negotiate and get a deal done, and you saw that the last time through, which means 
there are probably some people, if they vote against it this time, are going to wind up on the naughty list. What do you think that bill looks like, ultimately, from our good friend in Forsyth County, Senator Greg Dolezal? So uh, Senator, Senator Dolezal is a great friend, and he's very a very thoughtful legislator, and I think he's really thought through this process very well. I think ultimately the problem for the folks that are pro-voucher is the math. The math is tough when you think about a lot of Republican legislators live in rural parts of the states, and there are just no private schools to go to, or very few. And so the options are so limited that they don't get the benefit of it, and they like their school districts. You know, if you look and you go to rural Georgia, they're the beneficiary of what we call the five mil share. And what happens is every county or every school district contributes five mils of all their property taxes to the state, and the state redistributes it to the districts that need it most, which is fair. You do want to have a very fair system of education. Someone in uh, one part of the state should be getting as close an education as they can to another part, and that's the right thing to do. Uh, but if you're in rural Georgia, you might see your, your, um, your school property taxes at 14 mils. If you live in DeKalb County, it's 23 or 24 mils. So it's a big difference. They get to keep low property taxes. Uh, they don't have this option of going to private schools because they don't exist in many of these rural systems. So what's the benefit if I'm a Republican legislator when I have a system, a school district that you like, that you like the superintendent, you like the teachers. Uh, they may be your biggest employer, by the way, in that in particular county. So the, the math is tough for the vouchers to get done this year. So ultimately, you're, if you're a betting man, you're saying that the school, the school choice bill and the voucher bill that Senator Dolezal has put forward in, or in previous years probably still doesn't have much of a shot? I think it's, uh, in particularly in the House, I think it's going to be a very difficult um, road to hoe when you consider the math of rural legislators, several of which who've voted against it previously and have indicated they, they continue to plan to vote against it. What else is out there that you think is interesting? I hear a lot from our friends over at the Georgia Chamber that they want to attack workforce housing. Not that they want to actually attack workforce housing, but they want to be able to put forward a different set of standards for building materials in certain municipalities, counties, all in the name of, look, we've got all these automobile manufacturers coming to South Georgia. We need these people to have somewhere that's affordable to work. To me, having, being somebody who's set in locally elected office, the thought of the General Assembly getting involved in anything that has to do with design standards to nice communities, and if you were in the extra 106.3 listening audience, I hate to break it to you, you are the nice communities that, that the General Assembly is targeting. So be careful, because everything you see in the Hallmark lights and on the billboards, all that glitters isn't gold. I, I think you're exactly right from the standpoint that you know, going about it using design standards as a way to get to affordable housing is a ruse. It's, it's a farce. If you look at all the design standards you could mandate or take away from local governments from the standpoint of, let's say they ban vinyl siding, that's not going to move the needle on a home. All, if you, literally, all those design standards at most might move 5% of the cost of a home. It's land acquisition. It's the cost of borrowing the money. All those things are barriers. It's the down payment, that first down, pay, you know, the down payment you have to make. All those things are real barriers. So the solution really comes in a, a couple of forms. One, you have to encourage the market to build more. And this is an interesting statistic. Atlanta this year in the last census count actually saw their homeless population drop 21%. 
and that's directly related to the ability for people to get affordable housing versus the West Coast where you see L.A., Seattle, San Francisco with out-of-control homelessness. It's because they don't have good housing stock available. We do. We actually do have good housing stock available, generally speaking, compared to other markets. So design standards aren't going to move the needle. The things that could move the needle are helping people get that down payment. Let's look at other things like squatters. It's a real problem with people who are squatting in homes that are available for rent. They're taking up to 5% of all the product off the market. They're bringing crime into your neighborhoods. And it's very, very difficult to remove these squatters. And I'm sure you've seen many, many articles about it. So if the General Assembly wants to attack the issue, I think you can immediately free up 4 to 5% of all the housing stock that squatters are in and put that back on the, on, the, on the open market. That alone will move the needle. As you look, one of the concerns that I have every time, and listen, I'm grateful for every penny that I get to save when you look at the income tax reduction. As I drive down Georgia 400 or I drive around I-285 and I look at the state routes and I pay attention to this, like I said, as somebody who's sat in local government, you know what people in nice places don't like doing? Buying tires because they had to run over a pothole for the 15th time. And for consecutive years in a row, I have put new tires on my vehicle. Do I care about saving one-tenth of 1% on my state income taxes? Or do I want to not have to buy $1,500 worth of new tires? And it is known that Georgia underfunds its infrastructure because, candidly, most places in America have no choice but to underfund infrastructure because there's only a finite amount of capital. But every time you cheer for a tax cut, I want you to know that until everything is done, something is getting left off. If I had a criticism of the Kemp administration— And I cannot say that I have, I mean, I'm reaching when I say that I'm looking for a criticism of an administration. I believe the man would own that one. Do you ultimately think that infrastructure in the state of Georgia beyond the port, the nuts and bolts of government, do you think that that comes front and center with his budget as some of these municipalities have seen 40% increases in asphalt over three or four years? Because the quality is not there And not all of that is any one person's fault. But what do you think they plan to do to address infrastructure needs? That's a great, great question and great point. Uh, I do think, and recently I think you heard Russell McMurray, the the DOT commissioner, say that there's $91 billion in needs. $91 billion. That's a big number. It's a huge number. And even if you took every dollar in your surplus, you would need that for about 20 years. The governor this week during the Eggs and Eschews breakfast the chamber sponsors every year announced some additional dollars for infrastructure, and specifically in LMIG money, which is local grant money, which is great because jurisdictions can pull down this LMIG money and use it for almost anything they want. It goes straight to local cities and counties. That's a great source of money. So he announced, uh, I believe it was a doubling of the LMIG money. He also announced that all of the dollars that uh, he uh, took uh, took away from GDOT when he did the tax cut or removed the um, the excise tax on on gasoline, he would make up for in and this he has. cycle. Yeah. So I, I think it is a priority. I think it's going to have to continue to be a priority. I think ultimately what we're really going to have to answer is what do we do when EVs, electric vehicles, constitute a 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent of the vehicles on the road. And in, in, in Metro Atlanta, that is 100. In the next two decades, that will happen. 
And we do have to decide how we're going to tax that. Now, I own an electric vehicle. I pay over $200 a year in a tag tax that most ICE vehicles, uh, in internal combustion engine vehicles, don't have to pay. And that's generally going to equal what you pay in excise taxes over the course of a year. Believe it or not, you probably only pay about $150 a year in excise taxes if you drive about 12,000 miles a year. That's shocking to most people. That being said, uh, with the infrastructure needs, I think we're going to have to look at how we tax electric vehicles. I think we're going to have to look at how we tax even the, the, the existing ICE vehicles and, and re rethink how all that works because at some point we're going to have to pay a big bill. So you are a student of the game in the meritocracy of federalism around the United States of America. If Georgia had the opportunity to plagiarize ideas that another state was doing or has done, what do you see that's been done in some conservative-leaning states over the course of the last year that you're like, man, we ought to bring something like this front and center here? You've heard about, obviously, we've talked about Obamacare, and you've we, we know that Georgia is one of the states that never had full expansion of Medicaid. And for, there were a lot of reasons for that, and I think the reasons were solid fiscal governance. But that being said, I think that what Arkansas did was absolutely brilliant. And I think they're looking at the Arkansas model, as they call it. Basically, it's an expansion, but we're allowing the private sector to be involved. Instead of selling products from the government, we're allowing the private sector to use those dollars to sell directly to uh, policyholders. So the Arkansas model basically has an expansion, but it's just using the private sector to make it work versus a government solution. So I think that's one of the things that we're going to see the General Assembly take a serious look at. They call it the Arkansas model, and it's a form of expansion, but really it's a form to, ma to make sure that a lot of low-income Georgians have access to quality health care. I give Governor Sanders a lot of credit for being willing to take arrows and bullets every single day as the press secretary for former President Donald Trump and maybe subsequent President Donald Trump. But if there was one thing that she learned there that she had the opportunity to come back and implement was that she's got to see the way that all bad decisions, even the ones on our side, had the opportunity to make. And I think the way that she threaded the needle, and I still don't love it. I don't like that it's the law of the land. Me laying down and being saying I agree with you is me fundamentally dying inside just a little bit. It's like accepting COVID dollars as a municipality. I was like, in a couple of years, this is going to make it worse. As you look and you unpack what's out there, you know, we've talked about renewable energy and we've talked about Georgia's commitment to being the buckle of the battery belt, as my friend Chris Clark loves to say. See, we say bad things about affordable housing, and then we'll, we'll, we'll prop him up a little bit and say some nice things. What do you see as Georgia has made such a strategic investment in this industry in a right-to-work state, which I think is a massive good decision by several administrations, including Roy Barnes, all the way back, both sides of the aisle. You know, Governor Deal did a lot. Governor Kemp has continued. The Port of Savannah is very strategic for offloading trade and transportation. I think Georgia is as well-positioned as anybody on the East Coast as a right-to-work state the exceptions of our friends in Florida, probably. But what do you see around renewable energy that's taking place? Because you're seeing states out west that are conservatively led, realizing that they have an abundance of resources of solar and wind. And granted, we don't have all of that. Do you think that Georgia continues down the path that it has gone on with Q cells and solar? Do you think that there's another industry or another way that they're going to try to unpack and 
steal business away from California and the West Coast and the Northeast and show you there's a better way to do it? Absolutely. And, and I think you'll be surprised to learn how progressive and how aggressive the Public Service Commission has been on alternative energy and renewable energies. Uh, you know, I think what California has done wrong is do these false mandates of requiring X percent of renewable energy from their, from their energy providers. And what's happened is, is that they have rolling blackouts and other issues. They end up buying really dirty energy from neighboring states. Most people are, will be shocked to learn that I believe Georgia Power only has one last coal-burning plant, and it's due to close soon. So we'll be, Georgia Power will have no coal-burning plants. Where I will fault, fault, fault Georgia Power is that they, are, they fought pretty hard to limit the net metering program. If you know what that is, that means if you put up solar panels on your house and you've got batteries, uh, you can enter a program, uh, and they limit it to 5000 and you can sell the energy, excess energy, back to Georgia Power. Georgia Power has fought to keep that program small. In fact, it's closed out. I was one of the last few people. I have, a, I have solar panels and I have backup batteries. I'm one of the few people in the net metering program. Members of the Public Service Commission, including Tim Equals and, and Bubba McDonald and others, have pushed hard to expand that to 250, maybe 500,000 people. That's the way we get there. I think when you create an environment where people want to put up panels, want to have alternative energy, uh, renewable energy right at their own home, you've got many power plants over, uh, over the whole state, then you've secured the grid. Then you've encouraged the, the, the manufacturers to come here and locate here because if we're buying the panels and, and putting them up locally, they're going to want to locate here. So I do think there are some great places for us to grow. All right, Don, I've got a question for you, and a lot of people think that I'm a lawyer, and I am not. I have read in recent weeks that Governor Kemp really wants to take the 2024 legislative session and go after tort reform. First, what does that mean? And two, what does he ultimately want to change? Well, we haven't seen the legislation that, that he wants to put forth, but he's taken it very, very seriously. I think it's one of the most important things he wants to do in his second term. And the really good news for him is that he's got the other two key folks on board. Uh, Speaker John Burns is fully on board, and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones understands the importance of it. While Georgia has continually been ranked the number one place to do business, the one place where we could lose that ranking is that we've been named one of the legal hellholes in the country. We are a hotspot for litigation. And if you look at just a few examples, uh, if you're an OBGYN in North Carolina, you pay half the medical malpractice insurance that you pay in Georgia. So where are you going to go right, when, you're, when you're done with your residency? Someplace where it's cheaper to, to practice medicine? That has plenty of nice towns. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I, I've seen it over and over again that physicians are having trouble, especially in rural Georgia, recruiting doctors because it is so litigious and the rules are so stacked against the defendants in this case. And something has to be done, whether it's premise liability issues. You've heard of probably the CVS case where uh, two, two, uh, two people went onto a CVS parking lot to do an eBay exchange. One shot the other. And surprisingly, they sued CVS, and they won $140 million. Yeah, it seems wrong. And, but the problem is that juries sort of see it as, oh, it's just a big company. It's a faceless company. I'm giving someone millions of dollars. But the rules we put in place make it so much easier for the trial lawyers to succeed, and we have to change those rules. And hopefully, 
with this confluence of the, the big three, the governor, lieutenant governor, speaker, all on board, I think we can make some big changes. What's the biggest change that you've seen? I know you were a very, very good and loyal friend to Speaker David Ralston for many, many years. What's the biggest difference that you see dealing with uh, new, I won't say new, he's been there a year now, Speaker of the House John Burns? You know, and this is not at all a criticism of my dear, dear friend, Speaker Ralston. John Burns just has an energy about him. He has this fantastic excitement about him. I think people genuinely love to be around him. He has this sense of wanting to get uh, uh, his agenda done in a very thoughtful way. And not that Ralston wasn't doing that, but after 12 years, it, you know, you, you, you may have accomplished many of the things you've wanted to, and John Burns just has these great, exciting ideas. So it's great to be around him. What's the average tenure of a Georgia State House member at this point? Back of the napkin math, I'd say about 10 years. I mean, people really perceive, you know, that these legislators stick around for 30, 40, 50 years. There's not a single legislator in the Senate that's been around, except for two, that's been around for more than 20 years. I've been at the Capitol doing this. This is my 29th session. I have been around longer than 95% of the legislators there. Well, in fairness to them, like 29 years as an elected official in the same post is ridiculous. <laughs> when, you, when you look, I, I want to talk about the certificate of need. I know you have a very, very good relationship with a lot of the healthcare practices, and I know you have a very thorough knowledge of the industry in general. Is what Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones is after with the repeal of the CON laws or modifications to the CON laws that will be billed as a repeal. What do you ultimately think happens, and, and how afraid should Wellstar, Northside, and Emory ultimately be over the issue? You know, I, I think the momentum is with Lieutenant Governor. Uh, at the end of the day, changes in order. Uh, it's an antiquated system, and I think the irony is as those, self, as those health systems grow, and they're growing rapidly, as they acquire other systems, other hospitals, they're realizing that the very CON laws that they have been protecting are now prohibiting them from growing the system the way they want to. And so I think the, 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 the push from a lot of the, the hospitals to prevent um, you know, a repeal of CON is feigning a little bit. It's not necessarily in their interest to do that. And I think what you've seen in a few years ago in 2008, I believe it was, we passed a, a law to allow these ambulatory surgery centers, which has been a great thing because the success rate uh, at an AmSurge center is much higher than it is at a hospital. And so what you've seen is people realize healthcare can be provided at a very localized level for less cost with better results. And in many cases, you can't provide those health uh, ambulatory surgery centers, at least more than what we currently have under the current statute, and, and have multi-specialty centers without a change in certificate of need. Don, let's talk about tax credits. Everybody wants to save some money. What are the industries in 2024 that you think are going to seek subsidies, seek some favorable treatment from the Georgia General Assembly? What are some of those ideas coming forward, and what do you think ultimately gets done? So in the House and Senate, they took a very long look at it in uh, all of 2023. So they spent the year doing something called a study committee. So Ways and Means Chairman Shaw Blackman and Finance Committee um, Chairman in the Senate, uh, Chuck Hufseller, spent many, many hours interviewing dozens upon dozens of industry leaders that got tax or getting tax credits to find out 
Are they still working? Does it make sense? Should we repeal some of these credits? Obviously, the one that people talk about the most is the movie tax credit. It's significant. It's, I think, to the magnitude of $1.5 billion. It's obviously made Georgia the number one place to make movies in the world. It really is. I mean, they're doing, they're, they're, we're expanding to the point where we will have more uh, sound stages than L.A. in the next decade. Where are some of the places in the state of Georgia that you think are most primed to take advantage of the tax credits to the movie industry? I think you'll be surprised at some of the locations that are benefiting. As an example, the city of Fayetteville and Fayette County are benefiting extremely well from what, uh, what was Pinewood Studios and is now Trillith, uh, what their expansion is doing for that community. They're building incredible housing. They're having... It's wild, dude. Yeah. It's, it's like the, it's, it, it reminds me of the field of dreams when you drive upon it. Yeah. Like it's farms, 1950, 1960, 1970 ranch houses, and then you drive into like the Truman Show. It, it has this feel of like 30A kind of with movie studios after movie. It's just crazy. It's like Avalon, but like with Marvel Studios. Right. And they're building housing stock that's actually affordable. It's, it's amazing. And there's a ton of it. And, and I think what, what you'll be surprised about are things like they, they spend $6 million a year on carpenters and wood products because they have to build and take down sets all the time. So the, the, the ag industry benefits. They're buying a lot of that uh, wood product from Georgia companies that are milling it and making it right here in Georgia. So a lot of different industries are benefiting from these movie studios. So it's hard to always calculate it, and sometimes people overblow what the, what the real valuation is. But when you look at what's happening in Fayette, Fayette County, DeKalb, and other places all over the state, Savannah, growth. Savannah and tremendous growth. And these are folks that aren't necessarily, this isn't the talent. This isn't the, the A-listers that, that live here. They don't live here. They just come, they do the movies, they leave. But people who do live here are people doing lighting and sound. And the fact that Georgia State and other, other places are having a tremendous growth in their film program because kids realize that there's a real career they can have. Oh, it's crazy. You look at the largest data center in 2023 that got CO'd in the world was by QTS data centers was a 250 megawatt facility in Fayetteville. The amount of internet, and this is what I don't think people understand. Like this, that's the 21st century interstate system. And to see somebody like it is football field after football field after football field. And those companies locate there because there's such a tremendous amount of data use and internet connectivity. It benefits so many people that live really in the entire Southeast by defraying the cost when they go run fiber and make upgrades to other places because those companies reinvest all the dollars because those carriers go reinvest all the dollars because they don't want to pay taxes either. It's fascinating to see. One of the things I've heard about, Don, is that there's support in the Georgia Senate to get rid of DEI statements for university hiring. Now, we are on the heels of some bad blunders from some Ivy League schools in front of Congress who, you know, those university presidents may have all the degrees. They didn't have enough common sense to sit there and be willing to condemn people that were they didn't have enough common sense to condemn individuals that were participating in terrorism of residents of a sovereign country, and it has cost some of them their jobs. 
And on the heels of that, so much gets woven into the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation that I really think has seen its best days, and I mean best days pretty loosely. In, in my mind, all it did was ultimately sow division and take away from the idea of meritocracy in America. Do you believe that ultimately getting rid of the DEI statements in university hiring is the right thing for the state of Georgia to do, or do you think they're going to leave a little bit in there just in case the tide ever changes in another direction? Well, you know, I can't speak to the future, but what I can say is that Chancellor Sonny Perdue, former Governor Sonny Perdue, is doing an amazing job of trying to refocus what their mission should be. And I don't think the mission, sh- at least in his view, is going to be DE&I, inclusion-type policies. The other thing you've got is that it's in Georgia's Constitution, the General Assembly cannot tell the university system what to do. They cannot dictate their curriculum. They're very limited in that aspect, but they have one giant hammer, and it's the budget. And ultimately, if these universities don't realize what that means, they're going to start losing money. And if you saw it um, uh, when they cut roughly $125 million from uh, the higher ed budget last year, and if they don't respond, I think that's if you've only got one hammer, you're going to keep using that hammer. So I think that's that's a big piece of it. It's a pretty good hammer to have. Yeah, it's very powerful, and and I think that they're they're very serious about it. And I think if you look at this is a great example. I don't know if you understand or heard about something called the science of reading. It's basically taking literacy back to a sort of its fundamentals. There was a time period where especially the universities were pushing their teaching colleges towards unproven methods of teaching reading and writing. And what you saw is a huge drop in literacy. And now you're seeing this push. They call it the, the Mississippi miracle because several years ago, Mississippi applied the science of reading and, and saw huge, huge gains. And that was tremendous. So Georgia's doing some of that. Fulton County Schools, as an example, has done an amazing job, really doing real fidelity to the science of reading. And what you've seen is huge gains, highest graduation rate ever. And I think you're going to see Georgia put a lot of money in the science of reading. And why I say, oh, I'm going with this is that the university system has done a poor job of teaching teachers how to teach literacy, how to teach reading and writing. And by going away from proven methods that have worked for decades, uh, I think what, you, what you're going to see is the General Assembly is going to say to them, if you don't teach the science of reading, you will lose money, period. And they're going to use that hammer. So I, you know, I equate to some degree some of these progressive teaching methods to other things that are against the core of what the university system ought to be doing. And I think that's where the General Assembly is really going to stick, uh, uh, put, it, put a put a stand on the ground. So I was on WABE early last week with Theron Johnson, who uh, I know is a friend of yours, known, known him for a long time. He's worked for the Biden administration. He's worked for a ton of very prominent Democrats. He's one of the guys, if you want to get something done in the state of Georgia nationally, that you would call if you were on the left. That doesn't make him a bad guy. That makes him a capitalist. And we had a conversation about gambling. And the question that he posed to me, I'm usually pretty good about asking myself the second or third question. And he said, well, Ben, let me ask you this. If they're going to get sports gaming done, and I agree with you, does that benefit Democrats and when would Republicans want it on the ballot? And I always like people that can play the chess game. Like, I'm a, I can play the chess game. If you sent me an elected office, I could do something to benefit a, a, a person, a group, whatever. That doesn't make me evil. 
people who didn't like the fact that I knew how to do it, they, they may have felt like it was evil. But I was very good at the intended or unintended consequences of finding an angle and pursuing that. Still am. And I thought, that's interesting, because he said, I think it ultimately helps Democrats, because more Democrats are going to be likely sports betters. And I was like, well, so let me ask you this question, Theron. If Brian Kemp is not in favor of sports gaming and ultimately signs a bill because two-thirds of a constitutional majority was in favor of it, he gets the opportunity to run in a United States Senate general election for all intensive purposes and say, I didn't like this, but I let you choose. And that is the governor that I have always been. I left the freedom, I left the conversation around personal freedom up to the individual responsibility of said individual. How does that possibly benefit a Democrat? And I said, in the same way, I said, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones has been very in favor of a lot more gambling than you will hear Governor Brian Kemp be in favor of. None of that, all of that pulls on you. None of that pulls on me at all. We're probably both likely yes votes on sports gaming or casino gambling. I really don't care. And I thought, if Burt Jones was the guy who really drove that in the LG and he runs for governor and Chris Carr runs for governor and Kelly Leffler runs for governor and we know all of them and you know we like all of them they're all good people and I told Theron I said if Burt Jones if that is an issue in a 2026 governor's race Burt Jones is the only individual who has the opportunity to walk around the state of Georgia and say Chris Carr will tell you that he was in favor of sports gaming I did it and Chris didn't. And if that is an issue to Republican voters, and I believe it would ultimately be a big issue to Republican voters in a governor's race, do you think that that is a shape-shifting landscape thing where they would play politics with the date to put it on the ballot? I know we're in the weeds, but that's what we do. Yeah, I, you know, absolutely. I think that you're going to want to put it on the ballot when it, when it benefits you the most. Also, if I were a lieutenant governor or if I were the governor, I'd also want the revenue. So the sooner you do it, the sooner you can go ahead and start benefiting from the revenue. So if you do full casino gambling and you're getting $300 million a year, you can spend a lot of money on rural hospitals. You can spend a lot of money to shore up the, the, the um, college funds. You can do a lot of things with $300 million. And so it does give them uh, money to play with. And if, even if you did sports betting, it was 60 to $100 million. You can put that in places you want to you benefit. So you can, as you say, you're opposed to it. The voters picked it, but you get to spend the money. As you look at 2026, and in full disclosure, we stepped away for a second, and I was like, I don't know. You want to talk about 2026? I was like, that will affect you a lot more than it will me. They'll all come on my show. As you look, what do you think that field ultimately looks like? Do you think it's the three people I just outlined running for governor? you think there's a fourth or a fifth? I think there always will be several other folks. that Somebody from Congress. Absolutely. But I think the, the wild card there is there if Governor Kemp chooses to simply go to the private sector and work, uh, I think that uh, Senator Leffler would run for the Senate. Um, and she could probably clear the field pretty quickly. Uh, and I think she's going to defer to Governor Kemp before, before making that decision. So I think that does clear the field. Um, uh, and then it would be a car, uh, Burt Jones, like you said, maybe a member of Congress. I think you're always going to see some wild cards want to run. You might see someone very far right run as well. So um, They're not going to out far right Burt Jones with the Donald Trump endorsement. Right. Correct. Correct.
Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> that's Absolutely. not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. But that's interesting. I, you know, I've, I've been asked the question a lot, and I like both of them. And I would, I would stay. I'm the guy who would donate money after it was over on the last day it was over. And was like, look, I sit on the radio. Like, I didn't want to create a huge conflict. I didn't want anybody to be mad at me. And they'd all understand. But when you look, do you think that, do you think Senator Leffler is capable of, I, I think she's beatable. And I, I think she can have all the money in the world. I think she's beatable in a Republican Senate primary because she has, what was the last race she ran? Well, obviously the race she lost. And she's done a lot of work. But I would sit here and say this. If you have 50 or $60 million and you can't get it done, people remember that. Well, in her defense, what I will say in that situation, because it was a special, she was running in a jungle general election. So she was on the ballot with Warnock, with Doug Collins, with what uh, roughly a dozen candidates. And because she had to run with a Republican, a prominent Republican Very. on the ballot, she could never run to the middle. Whereas Warnock never had a glove laid on him until after the uh, general election and only during the runoff. And he never had to run to the left to get the nomination and then run to the, uh, it, then he could simply run to the center the entire time. So he did play a left, uh, you know, center left campaign. She had to run a far-right campaign all the way to November, and then she had to completely uh, jump over in an eight-week runoff. So in all fairness, uh, I think that her performance isn't necessarily reflective of her ability. It was reflective of being in a jungle uh, special election that forced her in, a, in, a, in an election with both parties. And really, no one ran with the party uh, name next to them. So she had a lot of problems with just the fundamental nature of that type of election. So I don't think it's a true reflection of what she's capable of. And as you mentioned, she's done a lot of work since then. She's spent a lot of time. Tons of grassroots miles. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'll say this. If Donald Trump is the president of the United States and there is somebody in that United States Senate primary that he likes, it ain't going to be her. I don't think it is. I think that if he had the opportunity to sit there and support Doug Collins like he wanted to do, I think that that would have carried a tremendous different weight in the first round, totally. And he had to sit out because his name was on the ballot. His name's not going to be on the – his name is not going to be on the ballot in 2026. And I do not care for the man in the least. If you listen to my show at all, I am very consistently ready to move on from Donald Trump. But I will tell you, if there is somebody that he likes, I don't think he's going to be afraid to wade into it. And, and, but do remember that he did that in the uh, 22 elections, and it yielded a 30% versus 70%. But, but Georgia was a different place, and it will be a different place in 2026. And Doug Collins, I know you listen to me. I think you ought to take the swing if you're going to do it. <laughs> and Doug Collins, I know you're listening to me. I think you ought to take the swing. I still love you, buddy. <laughs> Don, it's been great to sit down and talk with you, man. I always enjoy it. You got to weave around some cones a little bit more than I do. I can weave. If you were a lobbyist that was out of the game, I could just weave you into all kinds of batshit crazy conversations. I always appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. It's a fantastic show, and I love listening to you. Thank you, man. It's been another episode of The Ben Burnett Show. We'll see you guys next week. Have you thought about securing your hard-earned assets? Do you have concerns about the future? Protecting assets is crucial, and that's where Nelson Elder Care Law excels. As a family-owned and family-focused firm, we provide absolute assurance and peace of mind through our trademarked Absolute Protection Trust. 
tailored services in estate planning, probate administration, Medicaid crisis solutions, guardianship and conservatorship. Our goal is to exceed your expectations and empower informed decisions. Visit NelsonElderCareLaw.com for asset protection and peace of mind. Right now, American heroes are in some of the most dangerous places on earth, risking their lives to protect our freedom. But there are a forgotten group of heroes here at home. They face fear, loneliness, and despair, the ever-present threat of losing a loved one. These are the brave sons and daughters of the U.S. military, and they are heroes too. American Bible Society brings the hope and comfort of God's Word to the kids that need it most. Honor a hero and donate today at AmericanBible.org hero. This is the Ben Burnett Show on Extra 106.3. Welcome back to Extra 106.3, Atlanta's only conservative talk station. I want to talk about the Iowa caucus and the results with the Republican Party. The largest demographic of voters, and this is nationwide. You're going to see it if they turn out. you got your municipal cycle elections in the odd years. You've got your national elections for the most part in even years. 31% of all the people who turned out to vote were over the age of 65. Male, female, didn't matter, nothing. And also, did you know that Iowa had zero non-binary people vote? It's amazing what the issues are that the left likes to bring up that they think is somehow mainstream America. Over 100,000 people voted, and they all identified as male or female. Amazing. And yes, it was an option. Donald Trump has a stronghold on the party that I have never seen and that we will likely never see again. We talked a couple weeks ago about Nick Saban and how great he was and all the great things he did for college football and on behalf of the University of Alabama and the people that live in that state and the fan base. It's amazing. It's nothing short of amazing. The guy's got fans in the four corners of the country, most of whom will never meet him. And in every single demographic, he was the front runner. You look at people aged 30 to 39, they voted for Donald Trump in the Iowa caucus at 51% of the vote. Closely resembles the 65 and up where we talked about, 49 and a half. Those two people groups right there, people in their 30s and people over the age of 65, one out of every two of them voted for Donald Trump. That's amazing. It is nothing short of amazing. And now the field consolidates. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Asa Hutchinson didn't really have any fans, didn't have any supporters, whatever. We'll move on from him. Vivek Ramaswamy did. I mean, he carved out a pretty good following. He's a household name now. If you follow political circles, he's a guy who has a ton of answers for the future of the party. And no, it's not his time now. He knew it when he started. I think he ran the right race. He took very few shots at the guy who's ultimately going to win. And I think there's a place for a guy like that in public service. I don't agree with the guy on plenty of stuff. I think he kind of twisted in the wind just a little bit too hard, but it didn't matter. When Americans for Prosperity, the Koch brothers pack, came out in favor of Nikki Haley and started to pump tens of millions of dollars into her campaign, it kind of left him with nowhere to go or Hutchinson. You've also seen in subsequent days that Nikki Haley has said, unless Donald Trump is on the stage, I'm no longer going to debate. Well, let me tell you what that means. That means Ron DeSantis is the man on an island. He's willing to go anywhere. He's willing to talk to anybody, and his message has gone absolutely stale. I think that's unfortunate for a guy like Governor Ron DeSantis, because I think Florida is one of the two or three or four states that people can look at the meritocracy of America and say, there's a lot to be proud of here. We've done things in incredible ways. People from blue states came here by a larger margin than anywhere else in the country, except for probably save Texas. 
But when you think about what Donald Trump means to the future, I'm going to tell you a couple of quick facts. This is the last time that the man is ever going to be on the ballot. Because in four years, in 2028, if he wins, he can't run again. And in 2028, he will be too old even if he did want to run again. Regardless of how much you love Donald Trump, I think Americans, by and large, don't want somebody over 80 years of age in office running for president. I don't care if he's tireless. Something about that number plays with absolutely everybody, each and every one of you. It's a question that you would ask yourself repeatedly. Is this guy going to be able to survive four years? Do I think Donald Trump's alive in 2032? I mean, that's a pretty iffy question. He's in great health today, but this is it for him. And I think that Ron DeSantis has to take his ball and go home and campaign on behalf of the president. Because I think there's room for Ron DeSantis in his administration. Do I think he's a vice presidential candidate? No, I wish he was. I think Donald Trump probably secretly wishes he was. But look, Trump's going to win Florida. He needs a woman who has moderate tendencies on the ballot. And you're not going to see Haley take a whole bunch of shots at him because she, of all the people left, is the most politically motivated beyond right now. And I say that including Governor Ron DeSantis. I know there's a lot of people on Extra 1063 that don't like Nikki Haley at all. I understand why. I know I understand the axe to grind with her going to work for Boeing, making millions of dollars, paying off a bunch of family debt. I understand it. Look, that's the game that gets played. I don't think that she deserves to sit out forever. Would I have probably waited a year or two before I went and sat on the board of directors of some giant publicly traded company that deals with the Department of Defense? I probably would have, but I can't blame her for doing what she had to do. Look, Nikki Haley has shown you that she will leave a successful governor's tenure and term to go to work on behalf of a presidential administration. I think this affords the opportunity for Ron DeSantis to close out the last two years of his time in Florida really strongly. I don't think DeSantis is a guy who's going away. I understand that he is not well-liked by Marco Rubio and Rick Scott. And I get that he's not a part of the political machine in Florida, but it doesn't matter. DeSantis has done incredible things. COVID was a tremendous period of adversity in this country. I think everybody else has to take the opportunity with the Trump administration if they want to go to work inside of it, and they have to do the best job humanly possible carving out their brand. It is not any harder than that. Over the last year, I have told you, over and over and over again. I think DeSantis is ultimately going to want the shot back that he took where he went to war with Disney, the state's largest employer, where there's over 70,000 employees. I think it was a mistake. Do I think that he was wrong for going after Disney based on merit alone? No. I think a lot of the things, the DEI initiatives that they want to push are debilitating to the future of this country. I think he was 100% right. But sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And I'm going to make an excuse for him. He didn't know better. He took the Donald Trump playbook that he saw be really, really successful, and he replicated it. And it gave him tremendous results. But when you are running for president of the United States, nobody ultimately gives a crap about how successful you were and the mandate that you caused in your governor's reelection campaign. Because he can't go to New Hampshire and talk about it. Those people in New Hampshire may go to Florida once a decade. And a lot of people in suburban towns don't like all the social issue fights, even if you're right, even if you hold the moral high ground. Sometimes, especially if you hold the moral high ground. Teddy Roosevelt said, walk softly and carry a big stick. 
That doesn't mean that you get your big stick out every single time you see a fight to put your name in the paper. It's not always ultimately worth it. You look at guys that have been successful around national politics. Look at Brian Kemp. He didn't fight every single battle because he knew that in order to play the long game, sometimes you need to be in the headlines for all the right reasons, and sometimes you need to be a 1,000 miles away from them. And I think that DeSantis, if he had it to do again, he might actually change his mind. I am sure he is not the same person and the same politician in 2024 that he was in 2022. You couldn't possibly be. And at the same time, I don't fault any of these people for being in the race. Look, you got to shoot your shot when you get the opportunity to do it because nothing lasts forever. And the thing that I was ultimately wrong about was the stronghold that Donald Trump has over the Republican Party some three and a half years, three years after he left elected office. It's amazing. The fact that the guy can get one out of every two votes, 51% in any state in the country, three and a half years after he left elected office, is nothing short of amazing. And if you are interested in public service, look at his brand for the long game. I want to thank Don Bolia from Peachtree Government Relations for being my guest in this second segment. Of all the people that are around, Don Bolia is the singular most talented government relations person that I have ever met. Personally, professionally, the guy has all the skills. If you are looking for somebody to represent a cause or an advocacy group, man, Find him online. He's everywhere you could possibly want. Ask him his opinion. He knows all the answers. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ben Burnett. You can follow me on Instagram, at The Ben Burnett Show. I hope each and every one of you have a great balance of the weekend. We will see you guys next time. Have you thought about securing your hard-earned assets? Do you have concerns about the future? Protecting assets is crucial, and that's where Nelson Elder Care Law excels. As a family-owned and family-focused firm, we provide absolute assurance and peace of mind through our trademarked Absolute Protection Trust, tailored services in estate planning, probate administration, Medicaid crisis solutions, guardianship, and conservatorship. Our goal is to exceed your expectations and empower informed decisions. Visit NelsonElderCareLaw.com for asset protection and peace of mind. Right now, American heroes are in some of the most dangerous places on Earth, risking their lives to protect our freedom. But there are a forgotten group of heroes here at home. They face fear, loneliness, and despair, the ever-present threat of losing a loved one. These are the brave sons and daughters of the U.S. military, and they are heroes too. American Bible Society brings the hope and comfort of God's Word to the kids that need it most. Honor a hero and donate today at AmericanBible.org hero. Make the most out of your daily commute or next road trip in a new Audi from Audi Atlanta. And what better way to do it than behind the wheel of a stylish Audi A5 Sportback. Hey, it's Finn, along with my friends at Audi Atlanta, here to introduce this city to the Audi A5 Sportback. With a versatile and athletic design, the beauty lies within. Combining the sleekness of a coupe with the practicality of a four-door hatchback. And right now, you can lease the Audi A5 Sportback for $537 per month. Find yours at AudiAtlanta.com. And use the Jim Ellis Expressway to start or complete your entire purchase online or shop in person on Petrie Boulevard just inside the perimeter. Experience the thrill of driving like never before at Audi Atlanta. Offer applies to a 36-month lease, 2024 Audi A5 Sportback 40, 537 per month, 10,000 miles per year with 4731 due at signing. Example stock number A25954 MSRP 49,905 excludes tax, tag, and title fees. Offer expires 531.24 with approved credit.